On this episode of Hear Tell, short stories about family trees, immovable roots, and life lessons inspired by a funeral. I am the daughter of Paula, the daughter of Queen Elizabeth, the daughter of Queen Victoria, the daughter of Laura, the daughter of Linny. I stared at the taupe casket holding his body and wondered if he was looking down on us, imploring us to not wait to pursue our dreams, take that trip, marry our true love, kick that habit. He sat me down in mother's pale yellow kitchen and said, you're Creole, not black, and never let anyone tell you differently. Bloody hell. This is a single family tree? My name is Andre Gallant. I'm the host of Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. The show is a project of the Low Residency MFA in Narrative Nonfiction program, housed in the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. The short essays in this episode were written by current students in the MFA program. They were composed as brief, narrative-style reflections, prompted by books read during their coursework over the past year. Some stories are directly related to book projects students are working on. Others are one-off creative flourishes. Each one shows how the craft of narrative nonfiction is studied and applied in the MFA program. Our writers recorded their story from the safety of their own homes, just as I did with this narration, which makes this episode the first fully coronavirus pandemic isolation produced episode of Hear Tell. Normally we do our storytelling and interviewing in the soundproof, air-conditioned comfort of a studio on the University of Georgia campus, but taking the health of our guests, myself, and the community to heart, we'll be telling true stories and talking about true stories, safely and remotely, for the near future. I think you'll agree with me that distance, social or otherwise, won't stop a good story. Our storytellers today are Kim Lute, Jasmine pittman Morell, Tom Cullen, and Diana Keogh. To kick us off, here's Kim Lute with a story about her family's Creole roots. I remember the day father told me that I wasn't a little black girl. He was filling out a census report and used the occasion to send me spiraling into an identity crisis. He sat me down in mother's pale yellow kitchen and said, you're Creole, not black, and never let anyone tell you differently. He grabbed my hand and turned it palm side up. What color do you see? He asked. I answered pink. I was thinking of the color of my pink foam rollers. He beamed close, but look again, it's white. To father's delight in the years to come, I built an identity around being authentically Creo. I mastered seafood gumbo, corn mock chew, shrimp Creo, garfish coubillon, shrimp etouffee, boudin, crawfish, dirty rice with chicken gizzards, and pralines. I studied Catholicism, observed Creole holidays, and learned to dance Zotico. Anything to make myself over in father's image, to be as unblack as possible. My father's mother, who I met only once, 
was a willowy Creole beauty known for her translucent skin and Puritan features, which hinted at past miscegenation. She fled Louisiana when father was just a boy, abandoning him and his brother so she could pass as a white woman. Father, raised by his paternal grandmother, learned early on that he was born into a lineage full of free people of color. He's the shade of a pecan with wavy black hair and hazel eyes, but proud that his blood is diluted. Mother swore that his desire to shun the black parts of himself was proof that he lacked self-love, a result of having been born in god-awful, segregated Calcasieu Parish during President Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society. When father corrected her, insisting that he was only honoring the blood that ran through his veins, she replied, try telling the Klan or First National Bank that you aren't black and see where that gets you. No matter her protest, he made sure I valued my blanched skin. One day, when I was about 13, I innocently asked mother how I might cover the blue veins in my cheeks with makeup. Father all but dissolved into hysterics. Didn't I realize how valuable those blue lines were, he asked in his provincial Lake Charles accent. Had he taught me nothing? Mother argued that we weren't growing up in an era of segregated water fountains. We lived in an all-white subdivision in Denver, wore Jessica McClintock dresses, bought back east, and took Miss Manners classes on Saturday afternoons. None of this mattered, he insisted. Mark my words, he said. Those blue veins will be her pot of gold. And now, here's Tom Cullen, writing about his own thin family tree and the broad canopy tree he's about to marry into. Bloody hell. This is a single family tree? I stare in bewilderment at the colored lines and scribbled annotations. They might as well be hieroglyphics. Courtney smiles over at me. She has decided to use this flight, we are taking our first vacation as a couple, to teach me about her family. See, Tom? It really isn't that complicated. Two parents, two step-parents, three half-siblings, one step-cousin raised as a sibling, seven living grandparents. It had never occurred to me that anybody might have seven living grandparents. Countless aunts and uncles splay left and right on the page, contemplating the dozens of cousins and second cousins makes my head spin. My family is small. In fact, it's more accurate to say that my two families are small. Although my own parents have been happily married for decades, I had never seen their parents under the same roof. My maternal grandparents introduced themselves to everybody as Grandpam and Grandbob from the day my older brother was born. They moved across the country to be with us when my parents relocated for work. My childhood is filled with warm memories of weekends in rural Staffordshire spent chasing my older brother around their bungalow 
at the end of the small cul-de-sac at the bottom of the hill. We only saw my paternal grandparents on Christmas Day and once or twice every summer. My brother and I were never excited for the 90-minute drive to the outskirts of Manchester. Those shared afternoons, though never unpleasant, were typically filled with silent contemplation of the television. Grandma was a jealous woman. Mum, well, Mum was never invited. My extended family is not particularly extended. Of my three uncles, I am on speaking terms only with my mother's younger brother. The spitting image of Grandbob, short and stocky but with a ready laugh, Tim was my idol growing up. My own emigration was inspired by his move to the United States in the 90s. My dad did his utmost to shelter us from the influence of his two brothers. Incarcerated in both Spain and England for dealing drugs, Paul recently succumbed to years of addiction and abuse. I'm told I met him once, at six months old. My father seemed to feel that was quite enough contact. Terry forged a career claiming disability checks. I would struggle to pick my four cousins from a lineup of five. Now this might seem odd, but I consider myself lucky. I choose my friends and my family. My formative years were spent exploring the countryside with my closest friends, Rob, Jeremy, Matt and Stephen. For as long as I have known each of them, My friends referred to my parents as their second family. They often came on vacations with us, and none of them ever missed a special occasion. Following my move to the US, my friends would often check in on my parents. When Grandpa passed, Matt and Stephen delivered a bouquet of flowers to my mom and spent a joyous afternoon reminiscing in my family garden. As I continue to study Courtney's family tree, the paper now overflowing with increasingly cramped handwriting, turbulence shakes the aircraft. Courtney, anxious before we even left for the airport, crushes my hand in both of hers. We lock eyes. In that moment, as though the turbulence were dislodging an obstruction in my mind, I come to a realisation. Showing me this family tree was never just a fun way to pass the hours. That scrap of paper means everything to Courtney. Family holds meaning for her in a way it never had for me. My family has always been small. I never thought that would change, especially after only dating somebody for four months. Yet as I gently squeeze Courtney's hand and place a kiss on her forehead, I make a choice. Expansion. We'll now hear from Jasmine Pittman Morell on the many mothers who make up her identity. I am the daughter of Paula, the daughter of Queen Elizabeth, the daughter of Queen Victoria, the daughter of Laura, the daughter of Linny. My mothers begin with Linny in the Piedmont Plateau of North Carolina, clustered on the outskirts of the village of Charlotte. The land once home to the Catawba Nation was heavy with gold. 
When white settlers discovered it, the little village swelled with people destined to become the largest city in the state. Linny gave birth to Laura in the winter of 1881. This is the only record I have of her. No man is designated as Laura's father, and so I see Linny standing alone, defined by motherhood and place. In a time when black babies had only half a chance at survival, Laura's existence leans toward the miraculous. Africa is also a beginning, but resides deeper in the cells of memory. Only my DNA recalls the shores of Ghana, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. Only my blood carries remnants of the British Isles and living in symbiosis with the sea, and of the indigenous peoples already home here before settlers arrived. It's the mothers I can trace that make me a daughter of North Carolina. If I have a homeland, it's this one. Now, it's a spring morning in the western mountains, and when I step outside, I pull my sweater clothes, crossing my arms over my chest for warmth. When I call my mother these days, she likes to ask about the weather, happily telling me, in Florida, it's 80 or 90 degrees. I feign horror and grimace into the phone, enjoying the cool air in my front yard that smells sweet and green. I wish she would move to North Carolina, but she enjoys watching the delicate sandhill cranes standing on sidewalks in her neighborhood. I saw a black bear cross the road, I tell her, yes, in the city. She moans, and we laugh away our differences, but I wish she would remember this is where she belongs. I know you weren't born here like the others, I want to say, but you can still come back. I did. And you need me now that you're sick. When I was a child, we never seemed to live in one place for more than two years in a row. The apartments, townhomes, and houses in Virginia, Oklahoma, and Georgia were passed through places. Between the military and the hope for something better, we moved on and on and on. I always wished for a bedroom with a window seat, a place where I could be free to read and daydream alone and unburdened. Then our house would feel complete, as though there might be space for me to settle into myself and learn who I was. But the only house I am rooted to is my mother. If I have a homeland, it is also Paula, daughter of two queens, and Laura and Lenny. Our last storyteller is Diana Keogh, who recalls a dear cousin whose life can teach us all to live for the now. Rain pelted the tent and the wind howled through the 200-year-old cedars as a preacher droned on about Jesus and the better place where my cousin Robert was now. We were laying him to rest on the Virginia farm he'd bought just five years ago, a place he dreamed of owning all his life, a place where he'd never actually lived. He died less than eight months after his doctor said the word cancer. He was 70 years old. I stared at the taupe casket holding his body and wondered if he was looking down on us, imploring us to not wait to pursue our dreams, take that trip, marry our true love, kick that habit, end that deadbeat relationship, stop making excuses, change our diet, start exercising and stick with it, get that checkup, 
kickstart that business, try that hobby, take that risk, swallow our fear, quit that job, find that passion, and yes, buy that farm. But I'm fairly certain those are my thoughts and not his. Robert was a kind, gentle, soft-spoken man who loved to travel by car, careful to never exceed the speed limit. He wore a fanny pack and pleats in his jeans. He was cautious, feared change, and hated spending money. He never liked to throw anything away. His obituary reads like a job board, listing of places and positions. Robert never had all those children he talked about when we were kids. He never married his girlfriend of 20 years, never traveled the world. Buying this farm was the first audacious, out-of-the-box thing he ever did. And now he's gone. I stayed behind after everyone left to watch as his casket was lowered into the ground, accompanied only by the steady sound of the rain and the cawing of a lone crow high in the trees. On a clear day beyond the spot, beyond the pear trees, you can see the Blue Ridge Mountains. I imagine this was where Robert sat and sketched his farmhouse, taking it from three bedrooms to four and back down to three again, where he dreamed of the crops he would plant, the types of fish he would stock at the pond, and what he would do at the old chicken coop and smokehouse. At least I hope he did this. In my life, it's often been easier to play it safe or wait until it feels safer. But what if that feeling never comes? If my cousin's death jumpstarts something in me, the people who knew him, or even someone listening to this, then his life and death were not wasted. I think that would make Robert really happy. At least I hope it would. Thanks to all the MFA writers for sharing their stories with us. To learn more about Hear Tell and the low-residency MFA in narrative nonfiction, type the following into your browser. bit.ly slash Podcast. That's bit.ly slash Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite platform and leave a review on iTunes if you're so inclined. It would mean a lot. We're on all the social apps as well at Hear Tell Podcast. The weary and the worthless are tearing each other down. No surprises. Hear Tell will be back soon with another true story. All the people on the street are looking you down.